Well, if you know me or you've been around long, you know I love a good illustration or a good object lesson. And so this week, as part of my preparations, I came across one that I thought was really, really good. And uh, it was a statement that was made about Paul's letters to the Corinthian churches. And it said one of his primary purposes in First and Second Corinthians is to teach the people and us by extension to view all of life through the lens of the gospel. And so that kind of got some wheels spinning, like what if we had gospel glasses? And I was, I was going to put that up here, and then when I was playing around with it, I thought, you know, we really shouldn't just see all of the world through the lens of the gospel. Everything we say should be said through the lens of the gospel. Now, some of you were with me until I did just this, and you're like, whoa, hold on, Pastor Mark. Like, everything we say? And I know my nose is sticking out, and it's kind of funny, but I hope you get the point. Uh, and I hope that as you're reading through First and Second Corinthians here in, um, in our Banding Together journals, that you will take that point to heart, that we really should see all of life through the gospel. We shouldn't take these on and off, depending on the circumstances, and we shouldn't filter what we say through the gospel, depending on the circumstances or the crowd that we're in. That's going to be distracting if I leave those on. However, I want you to know, these will be available for a small donation. We'll just do it by auction after the second service. I think it would be a great, you know, conversation starter. If you've been looking for something like that, you could wear these to work on Monday and, and see where it goes. Um, but think about that. Think about how there's always this tendency or this temptation to compartmentalize our lives and to be Christians when we're at church or when we're at our small group or when we're in our discipleship group or or when we're around other Christians, but then maybe be a little bit less Christian when we're around people that aren't. And I struggled with this mightily early in my faith. I was working uh, in an industrial hose warehouse, um, and, you know, we didn't sing hymns uh, to open the day. Um, there wasn't much Scripture being quoted. Um, the subject matter of conversation and the vocabulary that was used wasn't always all that sanctimonious, uh, to say the least. And uh, there was kind of a I would change hats depending on the circle that I was in. And, and it took some time for there to be integrity or unity in my own life and in the words that I said and the way that I viewed the world. And so uh, I, I wanted to share that, and I wanted to do it in a way that would create a lasting impression, perhaps, that as you read through Corinthians and you read through these two letters, you would see that Paul is addressing subjects that are popping up in this church that's coming out of the world and creating this called-out assembly. That's what the word church in the New Testament literally means. It's a called-out assembly. So there's people that are leaving their Jewish heritage to come into the church. There are people that are leaving their pagan heritage and the Gentile uh, worldview and coming into the church. They're a called-out assembly, and they're grappling with some really big things, like how are we going to, how are we going to deal with, uh, with topics like division within the church, you know, and early on here in Corinthians, it's like, well, who baptized you? Well, I was baptized by Paul. Well, I was baptized by Apollos, and that's one of the first things he, he addresses, like there should be no divisions within the church, you know, no Jew nor Gentile. We talked about that last week. Uh, there's no division within the church that, that one group is better or worse than the other. In fact, there should be no divisions. We should see 
every single person that we encounter both inside and outside the church through the lens of the gospel, through our, our gospel glasses. And then he's going to move on to subjects like if you've been reading, you know, the last couple of days he's been dealing with sex, and he's going to be dealing with the food that we eat and the way that we eat it, and, and with gatherings and how we do our gatherings for worship, and the resurrection itself as he kind of closes this. And all of it's meant to, to view the world through the lens of the gospel and to view our mission in the world as ones sent by Christ into the world to redeem the world, to view that through the lens of the gospel as well. And this isn't just something that we see in First and Second Corinthians. It's a theme throughout the New Testament, particularly Paul's letters, and we see it in the Old Testament as well, that David, and we've kind of been in this parallel structure in this series of trust and obey, of looking at, at the New Testament writings of Paul, but also at some of the Old Testament writings in the Psalms of David, that David wrote many of his Psalms as a result of coming to see the world through the lens of God's unfailing love. And it's a common theme that comes up over and over and over in the Psalms. And, and, and perhaps he was writing these Psalms as, as worship music, essentially. That's what the Psalms really are. It's like the, the hymn book of, of Israel that we would learn to see, that, that those who were worshiping together would learn to see the world through the view, through the lens of God's unfailing love for them. Because if you trust Him and you trust His unfailing love, it changes the way that you view the rest of life. And if you view the world and you view life and you view people and you view your spouse and your children and your neighbors and your coworkers and your church folk and everybody else in your life through the lens of the gospel, it changes things. You believe that no one is beyond redemption. You believe that Jesus Christ died for every single person to have an opportunity to come into the family of God. And, and viewing the world through the lens of the gospel changes the way we see the world. And so we're going to start this week with one of Paul's writings in, in 1 Corinthians, and then we'll transition to a psalm because I see just all kinds of things kind of fitting together uh, here. So we're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and uh, if you're here in the, in the room, we've got Bibles in, front of the, in the back of the seat in front of you, um, and you can grab one of those Bibles. We'll be on page 1772, um, or you can pull this up on a digital device. If you're joining us online, we're so glad that you found us, and you can uh, join along the, the Scriptures will be on the screen, um, and, and then we'll be kind of working back through them together. So keep, keep that in front of you. But um, I want to I start by reading verses 4 through 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 to you, and then we'll kind of walk back through this. Paul says, as he often does at the beginning of one of his letters, he says, I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. Now, how many of you read a passage like that and you say, hmm, Paul, I think you might have overstated your case just, just a little bit. Like, every spiritual gift? Are you sure? I, I don't know about that. Uh, we don't lack anything. We've been enriched in every way. I, I don't feel that every day. 
And so there's a couple important things to understand as we kind of begin. And I really saw this passage as a perfect transition from what we were talking about last week, where we were talking about trusting God together, doing it together with unity of heart, unity of purpose, one with each other and one with God. And we looked at Galatians and we looked at Psalms, this idea that we were made for community, and we really are better together. David knew that. Paul knew that. They didn't do much of anything alone. They were always referencing other people. The narrative about them tells us that they had co-laborers in ministry or co-laborers in their life, and they did life together with other people. And our bottom line last week was don't divide what Christ unified. So with that sort of as a foundation, this transitions us into trusting God's goodness. As we trust God together, we learn to trust God's goodness, that He is good, like really, really good. There's a song we sing often, He's a good, good Father. Not just a good Father, but a good, good Father. He's good all the way through. And so as we think about trusting God's goodness, I want to think about trusting God's goodness together. Because this passage that we just read, all of the you's that you read in there, every you is a plural you in the Greek language. It's, it's something that the English language does. You can mean one person or it can mean you collectively. But in, in the Greek language, there's a different form of the word for a you that's individual and a you that's plural. And so he's writing to a church when he says this. And when he makes these claims, he's writing to a community of people that are viewing the world through the lens of the gospel and learning to do that. So when he says, I always thank God for you because of his grace given you collectively in Christ Jesus. For in him, you, all of you, have been enriched in every way in all of your collective speaking and in all of your knowledge. You, there's the potential for Christ to infiltrate every aspect of our lives, individually and corporately, because our testimony about Christ has been confirmed in you collectively. Therefore, and here's kind of the application, because of this, because Jesus has come into your lives individually and corporately, and I'm speaking to you corporately now, Paul says, because of this, therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift. So he's not saying, Mark, you don't lack any spiritual gift. He's saying, Linwood, you don't lack any spiritual gift because when you come together and you collectively use the spiritual gifts that you have, Linwood doesn't lack any spiritual gift. Me on my own, I've got three or four that are higher than the rest. I've got three or four that are practically non-existent in my life, if I'm honest. Like, I'm just not moved in those ways. And I would say the same things are probably true for most of you. You have one or two or three or four that are higher and that you feel strong when you do those things. That's maybe the definition of a spiritual gift is you feel the Spirit's power in you as you do those things. Preaching is one of my spiritual gifts. You might say, you know what, Pastor Mark? Preaching is not my spiritual gift. I don't feel strong when I preach. And I'm not going to tell you which three or four are on the bottom. If you've been around long enough, you might have some guesses, but that's a game I don't really want to play. I think it's safe enough to say that we all have some that are higher and some that are lower. And the idea is not that there be one perfect uber-Christian that is high in all of them and that would take the test and score 25 across the board, but that we come together and that you're strong in areas that I'm not, and you're strong in areas that I'm not, and you're strong in areas that I'm not. And when we all come together, we together don't lack any spiritual 
gift. That's what he's saying in verse 7, is that together we're enriched in every way. Together we lack nothing. Together all the spiritual gifts are present. And I would add that second half of verse 7, it is far better to eagerly await the Lord's return together than it is to wait alone. Have you ever waited for something alone? It's so much better to wait for something with someone, to wait when you're not alone. So we wait together. We wait eagerly. We eagerly await His return to be revealed to us. And so that's the first part. That's the trusting God together, trusting God's goodness together. But 8 and 9 really zeroes in on the goodness of God and trusting Him because He will keep you collectively, us collectively, strong to the end so that we will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. We eagerly await that, and we, we work towards and we pursue holiness, not just individually, but together. We do this together. We trust God's goodness together. We believe that He'll keep us strong to the end. We have faith in that so that we'll be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus. Because why? Because verse 9 is true. Because God, who has called us into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. That's a compound sentence. So in the New International Version, it says, God, comma, and then there's an interjection, and then there's the rest of the sentence. So it's basically saying, God is faithful. That's the sentence. That's the subject, the verb. That's the sentence. God is faithful. Do you trust Him? And in the midst of that statement, God is faithful, He says He's also called us into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ. He will keep us strong to the end. He will keep us blameless to the end because He is faithful. And in His faithfulness, He has called us into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I don't think it's a mistake that He tagged on our Lord there. That's really, really important that we understand that we are called into fellowship with our Lord. And the reason that's important is because Lord's call the shots. The Lord sets the direction. The Lord sets the tone. The Lord says, this is what we will do and how we will do it. And so it is Christ and our fellowship with Him that sets the direction, that sets the tone. Not any one person, not a super apostle, not, not any division that we could create or any hierarchy we could create. We're in fellowship with our Lord, and He's calling the shots. And we look to His Word to guide us and direct us. That's one of our, our core values here is that we would center our lives on the Word. Center our lives on the Word of God. That we would use it in every aspect of our lives to propel us in the direction of God. And so that's why we preach right out of the Bible every Sunday. And that's why our kids' way is, is centered on the Word. And the kids are getting a knowledge of the Scriptures from a very early age. And they go through a three-year cycle that puts them in every book of the Bible. And our student ministries, right out of the Word, pursuing Christ and pursuing His will for our lives through the Word. And Jesus is a really good Lord. That's the good news. See, He's a really good Lord. He, he loves us so much that He died for us, that we could be with Him forever. There's not many lords that will do that for us. He's a good Lord, and we can trust Him. We can trust in His goodness. And so one of my favorite psalms flows right out of this, and we happened to read it this week. And it was really hard to pick just one. I kind of wanted to go all over the place. I said, let's be a little bit more focused. And I prayed about it, and I said, okay, God, we've got communion coming up this week. Is that a factor? 
in what we do and what we talk about and how we understand trusting God's goodness together. And I landed on Psalm 32. So we're going to walk through Psalm 32 this morning. It's a shorter psalm. It's about 11 verses. We'll walk through it kind of chunk by chunk. And uh, it's on page 869 if you're here in the room with us. And this, this psalm is often referred to as a thanksgiving hymn. It begins with thanksgiving, it begins with, with stating that, and it kind of ends with that. So that's sort of the bookends of this psalm. And some people have tied it to Psalm 51, where David talks about his own experience of, of hiding sin and confessing sin and experiencing God's grace. But other scholars say, you know, there's, there's not a strong link between the two, even though he references a time when he kept silent and hid his sin. I think there's a broader application for this one. I think this one's less personal and more general because this is something we all have a tendency or a temptation to do. And so in Psalm 32, it starts out, verses 1 and 2, with this declaration, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man or woman whose sin the Lord does not count against him or her, and in whose spirit is no deceit. There's this declaration, there's a blessing that's available to us. It's a refrain, blessed is, blessed is. It reminds me of Jesus' opening words, the Sermon on the Mount, where he goes through eight different blessings. And, and scholars have pointed to that and to this as, as a definition of or an insight into who really is blessed, who really is joyful, who really is happy. It's those who are forgiven. We were not meant to carry the weight of our sin. It destroys us from the inside out. We are blessed, truly blessed, truly happy when we are forgiven of our sin. And so that's kind of the first big idea in this thanksgiving hymn, this hymn of thanksgiving for forgiveness, is that those who are truly happy are those who have been forgiven. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not even one. We've all sinned, and our sin has separated us from God, the God we were created to be in fellowship with forever, and we were not meant to carry the weight of that sin. So blessed is he, blessed is she whose sins are forgiven when the slate is wiped clean, when we come back into that relationship with God that we were meant to be in, and we enter it with him for eternity. Blessed is he whose sins are forgiven in whose spirit is no deceit. There's no deceit. There's no deceit between us and God. There's no self-deceit where we lie and say that the sin wasn't really a sin or we justify the sin by ourselves. And there's no deceit among others that we aren't pretending to be something that we're not, that we can openly say, I confess my sin. I agree that it was wrong. That's what confession really is at its core, is to agree with God. When we confess our sin, we agree with God that we sinned and we fell short and we receive his forgiveness. We embrace the gospel. We embrace the good news of the gospel. And there's no deceit anymore. There's no pretense. There's no pretending that we are something that we are not. We are open and honest before God, before ourselves, and before others. That's the first couple of verses as, as this comes right out of the gate. And then it's as if David are, is, is recounting a time in his life when he tried to hide his sin or when he tried to ignore his sin. He says, when I kept silent, 
My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. It's like this lost vitality that he's describing in these two verses. He's recognizing now it was actually a blessing because it brought him to repentance. He couldn't just go on, that the weight was too heavy to carry on his own, that he had a conscience, and his conscience was, was pricked. He had conviction from the Holy Spirit. He had a heaviness. And then in verse 5, then I acknowledged my sin to you. That's essentially confession. I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. You see how the tables turn in verse 5. Everything's going in the wrong direction in verse 3 and 4 when I'm trying to hide it. And yet when we, we try to cover our sin, you see that in verse 5? I acknowledge my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I quit trying to cover it up. How did verse 1 start? Do you remember? Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. There's a big difference between our sins being covered by the blood of the Lamb, covered by Jesus, covered by God's unfailing love and forgiveness, and us trying to cover our sins ourselves. It's a big difference. You see, we do a lousy job, an inadequate job, a terrible job. He does a marvelous job. His blood covers our sins as if they didn't even exist. And it reminded me of a story when I was a little kid. We had a pomida. Do you guys remember pomida? Do they ever have pomidas out here in Sioux Falls or in the area? It was kind of a big box general type store. And we had a pomida downtown, and we would walk down there sometimes and pick up a few things. And there was one of those Brax candy displays. Do you remember those? And it was like three cents a piece or or four for ten cents or something. I can't remember what it was. But I wanted the candy, but I didn't. I didn't want to part with the money, and uh, I wish I could say um, that, that my shirt was too small, because I had this habit. I would put things in my shirt, and, and I would tuck my shirt into my shorts, and my shorts were also a little too small. Truth is, all my clothes were a little too small, because I was a little too big when I was a little kid. I, I, was, I had a lot of Brax candy, I guess you could say. And so I had my wallet stuffed down in my shirt, and that was kind of cute, but my mom noticed a couple other lumps on the way home from Pomida over on this side. And she finally stopped and she said, Mark, what do you have over here? And, oh, nothing, you know, and I tried to turn, but I couldn't suck my stomach in enough to make it not stick out. And she said, oh, let's, let's take a look. And there were three pieces of Brax candy there. And she said, I don't recall you pay- paying for those. And I was caught. I had done a lousy job of hiding my sin. And we marched right back around, and we went down, and I got to pay for the candy and give it back. (laughs) So it was kind of a double whammy in the other direction. But my sins were forgiven, and I made it right with the owner, and I confessed my sins to them. And it's just a little picture of kind of how inadequate our own Efforts to hide our sin really are. And so we see that all playing out in the first five verses. In the second, five, or second six verses, we see an application of the truth that we are blessed and we should confess and do so quickly. Because that's really the truth. Confess your sins freely. Don't wait. Don't hold back. 
And we know it's an application because the first word in verse 6 is therefore. And anytime you see a therefore, it's kind of saying, it's making the application easy for you. It's saying, okay, we discussed this in verses 1 through 5, therefore. And the, the truth that was, that was discussed in verses 1 through 5 is, is this idea that we need to confess. We're lousy at covering our sins on our own. David says, I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle the guilt. I couldn't handle the conviction that was upon me. So I confessed, and it all went away. Blessed is the one who confesses. Blessed is the one who is forgiven. And I love this footnote from the ESV Study Bible. It says, no one needs to compel God to show mercy. Rather, the faithful confess their sins because they believe He is merciful. We don't need to compel God. We don't put Him in our debt somehow. Instead, we confess our sins because we believe He's merciful. We believe that He is merciful. We trust His goodness. We trust that He's not looking for a way to zap us, that He's looking for a way to bring us into deeper fellowship with Him, and that it comes through confession. And so we see this in verses 6 and 7, which are addressed to God. And the psalmist continues, Therefore let everyone who is godly pray to you, God, while you may be found. When can God be found? All the time. He's not playing a game of hide-and-seek. He's always findable. May we confess to you, pray to you, while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him, the one who confesses. You are my hiding place, God. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. The message is clear. Don't wait. Do it now. Do it while God can be found, which is always. And it's interesting to note here and in other places, the godly are not expected to be sinless. They're expected to confess when they sin. They're expected to to return to God and to confess to God and to experience God's infilling. And, and as we do that, as the Spirit comes in and convicts and we come back to God and we confess, we become holier, we become more righteous, we become more set apart for Him as we grow in our holiness. Because this is talking about a godly man, and yet it's saying that when the godly pray to you, they will experience your forgiveness. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of redemption. And it reminds me of a couple of New Testament verses that, that stand out to me. First John 1 John 1.9, where it says, when we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just. Faithful means he'll do it. Just means he's right to do it because Jesus paid the penalty for that sin on the cross. So he's faithful and just, and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's good news, that God will cleanse us. We will be forgiven. He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the other one that came to mind was James 5, 16, where it says that if we confess our sins to one another, we will experience healing. It says, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. So we confess our sins to God for forgiveness, and we experience the blessing that Psalm 32 is talking about, about being forgiven. And when we confess our sins to one another, we experience healing, that they, those sins break, their, their power gets broken when we share that, when we shine a light on it. We say, guilt and shame has no place in my life. I, I'm not flaunting my sin. There's plenty of that going on in culture, but I'm repenting of my sin. I'm sharing that with people. I'm inviting accountability, and I'm finding healing 
in the acceptance that greets me when I confess my sin to God and to others. We don't hide our sin. We make God our hiding place. Do you see that in verse 7? You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Don't hide your sin. Learn to make God your hiding place. And then this continues in verse 8 and 9, but now the, the address is to fellow worshipers. So instead of addressing this to God, he's addressing this to the fellow worshipers. And he says, I will instruct you, fellow worshipers, and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. He's saying that to the, to the, the assembly. And he's, he's basically saying, I've got some good advice for you. The wise of you will take it. Those with understanding will take it. Unlike those without understanding or without wisdom that won't take this advice to confess, to come to God right away, to make Him your hiding place. It's kind of like children, you know, you tell them to eat their vegetables, I don't want to eat my vegetables. And so they're like the horse or the mule. You kind of got to lead them around with bit and bridle. You got to take away things that they like in order to get them to eat their, you know, you got to, you got to work harder to get them to do it. But those with understanding, they come to this recognition. It's like, I don't know when it clicked for me, but I was like, you know, vegetables are really good for me. And they're easier to digest, and they give me things and nutrients. I think I was in my 30s. Okay, so (laughs) I'm not bragging. But I gained some sense. I gained some wisdom, and now nobody has to tell me to eat my vegetables. Nobody has to take away something that I want because I won't eat my vegetables, like the games we have to play with our kids. And he's basically saying the same thing. This is good for you. Just do it because it's good for you, not because somebody makes you. This is good advice. I'm giving you some advice. I'm giving you some instruction. Confess your sins. Make God your hiding place. Don't try to hide your sin. And then verse 10 and 11 are still addressed to the fellow worshipers, uh, but they say, Many are the woes of the wicked, those that are always hiding their sins, But the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts him, the man who trusts him enough to confess his sins, the man who trusts him enough to come home to him and say, I sinned. I'm confessing that. Will you forgive me? Rejoice in the Lord, verse 11, and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. And it's important to understand that word righteous simply means you have right standing with God. There's nothing between you and God because you've confessed your sins. Because you're you've repented. And, and don't get this idea where it's like, sin I will, sin I must, I'll just keep sinning, and I'll keep confessing, and I'll keep sinning, and I'll keep confessing. That's not the evidence of a transformed heart. The evidence of a transformed heart is, I sinned. I'm repenting from that sin. I'm moving in a different direction now, and I'm, empo- I'm praying for the Holy Spirit to empower me to move in that direction and to convict me when I get astray. And then I'll confess, and I'll move in step with the Holy Spirit once again. And so the question might be, if you, if you look at, at verse 10, who and what is surrounding you? Is it your sin or is it the Lord's unfailing love? Because we have unconfessed sin and we're hiding that unconfessed sin and it's, it's all around us, as he says up in verse 3 and 4. And yet if we confess that, if we trust God with that, then we get to exchange that 
for God's unfailing love. We get to exchange our sin for God's unfailing love, and God's unfailing love surrounds us. And then we rejoice, and we are glad, and we have right standing with God, and we sing because we're upright in heart. And that contrasts with with verse 2, in whose spirit is no deceit. There's an uprightness in our heart. There's no deceit in our heart. We're not trying to hide anything. In fact, we're hiding ourselves in God's love and surrounding ourselves in God's love. And so our bottom line today is actually a statement I made earlier. Our bottom line is don't hide your sin. Make God your hiding place. Don't hide your sin. Trust Him. Trust His goodness. And make Him your hiding place. Come home. It's basically a psalm saying, go home. I saw this thing on social media, and it it just broke down the difference between religion and the gospel. That religion says, I messed up. My dad's going to kill me. That's kind of the mindset of religion. Whereas the gospel says, I messed up. I need to call my dad right away. As soon as I recognize that I mess, I got to call my dad. He'll forgive me. I trust him. I trust his goodness. He'll show me the right way. He'll help me, empower me to do the right thing in the future. And so we come to see even our own sin through the gospel glasses. And we say, even my own sin, I don't want that to separate me from God. I'm going to confess it. And once we do that, It's a lot easier to view other people's lives and the things that we see in their lives that don't seem to line up. We see them with compassion, and we can try to move them towards God instead of allowing judgment or condemnation to push them farther away. And so I I see communion as a perfect close to this message, a perfect close to our time together, that, that we would celebrate the gospel, the good news of the open table, that Jesus on the last conversation he had with his disciples was driving these points home. And so as we transition into a time of communion this morning, I want to just remind you, if you're new here or if you've been here before, in the Wesleyan Church, we serve an open communion, meaning you don't have to be a member or have your name on a list somewhere in order to participate in communion. Our requirement is the same as Jesus's, that as often as you do this, you do it in remembrance of Him. And so it's very important that we understand that we're welcome at the table, that it's not too late that We haven't sinned too much in order to come. And that blessed is the one whose sins have been forgiven. And we can rejoice in that. And so communion is and has always been a time of confession. It's a time of introspection. It's a time to repent If there is something in our lives, something that has come between us and the Lord, something that is amiss, we take an inventory, we take stock of that, and we confess that to God, and we repent. It's a time of confession and repentance. It's a time of remembrance of what Christ has done 
for us. Would you pray with me as we prepare to receive? Lord Jesus, we thank you that there is a blessing available to us through the forgiveness of our sins, through returning to you and agreeing with you and repenting. Right now, Lord, we take a moment to confess. We confess anything that's come in the way of our relationship with you. We confess our pride and our selfishness. We confess that maybe we've been judgmental of others. Maybe we've condemned ourselves and denied the truth of the gospel. We confess anger and even hatred. We confess any area of our life where we've been tempted or have given in to those temptations. We confess any deceit. And we exchange all of that and we, we stop trying to hide it, Lord, and we, we lay it before you. And we say, I agree, this is wrong, whatever it is. And I ask you forgiveness. Stop trying to hide it. I want you to be my hiding place. And we ask you, Lord, to bring us freedom. Freedom from guilt. Freedom from shame. Lord, as we trust you, as we confess May we be free from fear and from anxiety and from anything that would push us away from you, anything that would separate us from you. May we receive your unfailing love, Lord. May it surround us. May we rejoice in your goodness and your grace. May we be glad and sing together your praises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now if you would take the elements, a small piece of bread and a small cup of juice are symbolic, deeply symbolic. They're representative of Christ, His body, and His blood. And so... Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that on the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat the body of Christ. In the same way, after the meal, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Take and drink the blood of Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you again. We are not deserving, and we are only worthy because you declare us worthy. Help us, O Lord, to live out your grace and your goodness. Help us, O Lord, to experience that forgiveness, to experience that blessing that you have for us. Help us to trust you, to trust in your goodness, to trust in your grace, to trust in the power of the gospel and to see all of life through your unfailing love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you continue to respond, we'll sing a song together. You can come to the altars and pray. You can go to the cross and, and write out a prayer request. Or on Wednesday night when the youth was in here, they used that for confession. If there's something you would like to confess and place it at the cross, this will be a powerful time to do just that.